It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. I'm doing all right. I think we're talking about uh, a rarely discussed topic on this podcast of uh, yeah, we- <laughs> muscles. <laughs> the the muscle podcast i yeah i don't know i i i haven't been on this bodybuilding type program for like what do you think it's been like two months now yeah sure yeah about S- something like that i just been on my mind because it's a significant difference significant change from like chasing numbers powerlifting whatever and then sort of getting gaining more perspective on like the relationship between getting stronger and getting bigger, getting bigger and getting stronger. And we get questions about this all the time. And I know that we've addressed this topic in piecemeal before, but never like dedicated a full like hour length podcast to it. So I thought, let's just send it, you know, I mean, we're getting right. close to January one. People are gonna be like, I want to get bigger. I want to get stronger. It's time to like leverage all this motivation. We got this. This is probably the best year for it. January one falls on a Sunday people are going to be, I mean, at the start of everything, you know, like if January 1st fell on like a Wednesday, like the real new year doesn't start till the following Sunday this year. It's, it's starting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, This weird arbitrary thing that I guess we all, you know, I don't know. That'll work. Yeah. The (laughs) the Gregorian calendar we know, as we know, is completely made up. Uh, (laughs) I I don't know what other calendar we're supposed to use, but uh, in any case, Hey man, we got some holidays coming up. Well, you guys got, you got plans for, for the holidays. I'm flying my parents down to visit me. Yes. Nice to celebrate Hanukkah. I I presume all the, all the deeply religious holidays. Yes. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Main, main takeaway is religion. Uh, yeah. So we're right in the throes of, uh, Hanukkah now Christmas is coming up here five days until Santa lands his sleigh somewhere on the apparently North America. I would, I would guess is where he was starting. I don't know. Actually he probably starts in Europe and then flies, you know, typical American thinks he's starting yeah. in America. Eccentric. Yeah. Well, I just, <laughs> okay, okay. This is, this is interesting. So, uh, when I, I just, I went to Dubai a couple of weeks ago. All right. What is the direction of the plane leaving from LAX going to Dubai directly? If you had to guess, is it like north or something weird that you wouldn't? It expect? is north, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we flew right up the coast, like over over top. I mean, I passed out. Like, I don't yeah. know if we flew over Alaska or whatever to the side of it or yeah, what it is. Yeah. But yeah, and then you know, re-entered the little screen thing. And I was like, oh crap, we're we didn't go <laughs> we didn't go west. I just figured we going we're going west. But you nope. went off the edge of the earth is really what happened. Yeah, I, I did. Yep. hundred percent, hundred percent. So yeah, we'll see. Maybe Santa takes a similar course. I don't know what yeah. the, some, some engineer somewhere probably, you know, worked that out and has like a detailed flight plan of like how, how Santa would actually fly his sleigh. Uh, yeah. For maximal know. efficiency. Yes. I think, you know what? I'd be interested to get Ponzer back on the podcast and talk about the energy requirements of reindeer to actually pull the sleigh. Like mm-hmm. how much energy would they need to do this worldwide venture is that even feasible like how efficient are they i don't know i think there's like a section on reddit where it's like they did the math or something where people will post questions and some 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 nerds will spend hours on calculating these things okay yeah so the newest book that i'm reading is uh randall uh, monroe's second book uh what if part two so he was like an ex astrophysicist at nasa and then he guess switch to drawing comics the xcdc or whatever comics and people will kcd yeah 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 and people will write in like what would happen if everybody on earth jumped at the same time and he like (laughs) figures it out this is a question for him like let's ping him and ponzer get it on (laughs) uh in any case yes this is episode 205 at the barbell medicine podcast we're talking about the relationship between strength and muscle hypertrophy this podcast is brought to you by pioneer for all your belt wrist wrap wrist strap needs head over to generalleathercraft.com. tell them barbell medicine sent you they support our podcast you want to support us and those who support us uh, head over there you can get a uh, custom belt and any width any thickness any prong or lever orientation um okay here's the question re- relating to belts i keep peppering you with belt related questions and you're <laughs> always like dude what things i've provided deep thought into yes deep thought what's the worst <laughs> belt you've ever used um, hmm. I think that there are some of those, uh, those kinds that you'll see usually for like checkout at college gyms that are like a single layer that's basically suede and it's tapered and it has a single prong and like, it'll just rip through the holes practically if you put any actual force through them. Oh yeah. Uh, probably those or just straight Velcro that just like busts open 
at the slightest Valsalva. Yeah, I have a two. I have two that were equally as bad, but for different reasons. One, I had an elite FTS belt with a layer of plastic in the middle of it, and I think Alan Thrall actually had a post about he had, we had the same belt. It is a belt that is yeah, it's like suede on the outside or leather on the outsides rather, with a plastic liner like in the middle, sandwiched between two layers. It never breaks in. It because ne- it's plastic. It just yeah. like. Uh, it's also illegal for like all powerlifting meets because they don't allow plastic in your belt. Um, so that one is just wildly uncomfortable. And I just couldn't figure out why the belt was giving me bruises, like even a year into using it. And then, uh, finally someone told me they were like, when I went to a meet, they were like, you can't use this belt. And I was like, why? And then they pointed out the plastic. I'm like, I'm an idiot. Uh, so that belt was terrible. And then there was a spud ink belt. It was like, it uses like D rings. Like if you put on a helmet and you got to like thread the thing through the D rings to like, yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know they made belts. I thought like pulley systems and things like that. They got pulley systems. They got belts for like a belt squat machine. They got harness attachments, whatever. If you have a body part that you can attach a harness to it, they probably make (laughs) something for you, but they also have this like (laughs) D ring type lifting belt. And I remember like trying to cinch it. And the biggest problem is that it loosens up when you use it, but then to take it off, it's kind of a, pain in the butt you're like you're like yeah it comes loose but not like easily enough to take it off after a hard set and you're like i'm trapped felt like you know trapped in this closet trapped in the belt (laughs) hated it um in any case yeah uh it's holiday season and here at barbell medicine we got a brand new release of apparel uh, by the time this goes up, the stuff should be on the website or maybe the day after. Uh, so maybe tomorrow when you're listening to this, we have new hoodies, new joggers, T-shirts, flags, etc. The Barbell Medicine Lifting Club uh, line is going to be out in black and white. It's pretty fashionable as a man of culture and fashion. 10 out of 10 would recommend. So if you're interested in supporting the latest Barbell Medicine gear, you can uh, get that over on our website. Links to that in the description below. Also, uh, we still have some live in-person seminars coming up in the beginning of 2023 pain and rehab seminar in Miami uh, in January. We'll all be there and it's new and improved. So if you're looking to bone up on your uh, pain and rehab knowledge and skill set, that would be a great uh, live in-person seminar for you to attend. We also have our two-day health and performance seminar coming up in Atlanta. That's in February. And then uh, we'll be in Brooklyn, New York in May. And yeah, if you're interested in attending one of these live in-person seminars, check out the link links to that in the description below. All right. So let's, let's hop into this. Austin, you're obviously the second most jacked member of Barbell Medicine. Charlie is clearly the winner here. He's (laughs) the most anabolic, the most jacked, uh, Barbell Medicine coach. Um, so yeah, when I say to you, what the, what's the relationship between strength and muscular hypertrophy, just right off the bat, what's your thought? I think that there is a correlation between the two. In other words, uh, particularly among more trained individuals, which is something that we've talked about before. The more trained people are, there tends to be a, a, a bit of a closer relationship between how much muscle they have and their uh, ability to produce force in a particular way. But I think that the causal relationship between those two has previously been assumed to be quite high. And I think we have more recent reasoning to, uh, to question that a little bit more. Yeah, I agree. That's a great segue into this. And we've talked about this before, not only uh, Austin and I on the podcast, but also in our podcast with Dr. Eric Helms. I believe that's episode 162. Uh, although on some podcast servers, that podcast has apparently gone missing. And I, I don't know if Dr. Helms and I like discussed stuff that's getting us flagged and like removed from various platforms, but it's on SoundCloud. That's where we host our stuff. So we've talked about it there. We also talked about it with the data-driven strength guys, and I don't know what episode that is off the top of my head, but uh, I'll it'll be in the description below. In any case, we're going to address it in depth here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is episode 205 brought to you by Pioneer. So first off, what is strength? Strength is defined as the amount of force produced that's measured in a specific context. So there are different types of strength, such as low velocity, maximal strength. That'd be like powerlifting, high velocity strength, power uh, in general. So things like running, punching, throwing, kicking, uh, heaving and implement, uh, for example, there's strength stamina and strength endurance. So being able to produce force submaximally for a long period of time, different types of strength 
and different types of demands. But when most people say strength, like I want to get stronger, they're probably referring to low velocity, maximal strength, like getting a higher one rep maximum or similar. Um, Although getting stronger can happen across multiple rep ranges. If you're programmed to do sets of 10, for example, and you add weight to the bar and you keep the proximity to failure, your repetitions in reserve um, or RPE the same, guess what? You got stronger just in a higher rep range. It's not a one RM. It's a, you know, set of 10 repetitions at RP eight. If you squatted 315 for 10 at eight, and then you, now you can squat 330 for a set of 10 at eight. Guess what? You got stronger. It's just, and it is likely that your one RM went up, but we don't know that. We just know that your set of 10 with two repetitions in reserve RP eight went up. Um, so let's talk about what type of training drives strength improvements. So just as like a 10,000 foot view, improvements in force production are complex and they require adaptations across multiple domains, including the nervous system, both the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, central nervous system being brain and spinal cord, peripheral nervous system being everything else. So all the nerves innervating the muscles themselves, for example, Uh, also adaptations at the level of the skeletal muscle. So things like muscle stiffness, things like muscle penation angle, um, muscle fiber uh, makeup, muscle energetics, tendon structure and stiffness and its mechanical properties, uh, and also, of course, uh, skeletal like bone adaptations, among others. So there are many different adaptations that are required to improve strength performance. Um, as far as the nuts and bolts of what type of training actually drives strength improvements, the exercise selection and the intensity used should be specific to the desired adaptations. Although there's lots of carryover from different exercises and intensity ranges. But basically, if you're trying to improve your one rep max squat performance, you should probably squat instead of leg press, just because the specific adaptations that you glean from the squat are more specific to the test that you're going to be tested on. Uh, And again, same thing with intensity ranges. If you're trying to improve your one RM squat, doing sets of 20 is probably not the most efficient way to do that. Although improving your 20 RM or your 10 rep max or five rep max will likely coincide with an improvement in your one RM, just not as uh, markedly or as significantly as training singles, for example. And, and, and just to add a comment there, because there's that's sort of like a semi-contrived scenario where you mentioned like you would want to squat rather than leg press this is one of those where it's like you could also do do both but i think the point is that you would expect the most uh the most kind of specific adaptations to squatting by squatting um you would in in other words if you had a program that you that uh, you wanted to apply in order to maximally improve your squat you would definitely need to have some squat exposure but you wouldn't necessarily have to have some leg press exposure you could if you wanted to and it would provide some benefits likely for for a lot of people we use them as supplemental movements and accessories and in all sorts of training programs for folks for various reasons um but that it's kind of like a one-way street you definitely would want to squat to get your squat better whereas you may or may not want to do other things that are that are you know relatively speaking less specific yeah this is when people talk about like general strength and i'm like i don't really have a good definition for that outside of like strength performance across multiple domains. And so in that case, you'd want to get stronger in a wider variety of different exercises to sort of encompass all potential challenges you could face. But if the test is known, you definitely want some exposure to that test or something similar to it. Um, And for maximal strength development, as far as intensity goes, the data does suggest that training at higher intensities is better than training at lower intensity. However, the data on that, like if you pull that Schoenfeld paper is like one of his Magnus Opus type papers. He has all these like meta-analysis and systematic reviews on like training volume and training frequency and training intensity. And it's like, yeah, training at higher intensity is better than training at lower intensity for strength gains. But the cutoff they use in that meta-analysis is 60% of a 1RM. And you're like, yeah, so all of my training is higher than 60%. (laughs) Um, So the data really isn't granular enough to tell us whether training at 90% of a 1RM is better than uh, for strength development than 80% or if 80% is better than 70%. We just don't know that. Um, because those types of tests have not really been done. And further, 
we would expect a wide variety of different sort of results based on the individual. Some people are going to respond better to 70%, some people better at 80% and everything in between uh, and, and even outside of that. Rep- and it also kind of reminds me that obviously this is a different uh, line of research, but when we talk about like in the nutrition research world, wanting to have a sufficient contrast in exposure between like high versus low intake of something in a diet to be able to find an effect. And, and the closer or the smaller that contrast in exposure is, um, probably the bigger of a study you're going to need to actually detect a difference between <laughs> between groups, right? So if you yeah. wanted to compare 90 versus 95%, like you're just not going to probably find a difference there um, uh, because you have a combination of needing enormous, you know, statistical power. And that's yeah. also going to be super muddy and messy with uh, differences in individual response to these things among many other things. So it's just super messy. Yeah. That's why when people are like, oh, what if, if I'm training if my average intensity for most of my volume right now is 70%, what would happen if I kick it up to 73%? I'm like, yeah, I'm I like think that's shrug. an, it's an yeah, error bar. Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, and also that's not really a complete description of, of what you would need to assess anyway, because it doesn't bring in the, uh, this concept that we call proximity to failure. So like how close each set is taken to failure. So you could do 80%, for example, very close to failure or to failure or very far away from failure. So think about a set of eight at 80% of your one rep max for any particular exercise and doing that for a set of eight, which would be like an eight rep max or doing it for a single. So like at RPE five or four, then you're like, okay, those are two different things, even though they're both 80%. Um, so you have to bring in proximity to failure and the data on proximity to failure is pretty interesting. It looks like there needs to be a little bit maybe of velocity loss throughout the set indicating some fatigue has taken place, but not that much. Like if a significant amount of velocity loss has taken place because you're getting very, very close to failure, RP9, RP10, uh, for sure, it looks like those sets are actually less productive for improving strength than sets further away from failure. Uh, And so when we take that all together, we're really looking like most of your training for strength development should take place somewhere between 65 to 85% of a one RM. So the bulk of your volume should be in that range at something like a four to five, uh, reps in reserve to maybe two to three reps in reserve sort of range. That's the proximity to failure bit. But in addition, if you're trying to improve your one rep max, like no joke, you're doing a one RM, you probably need some practice there. And that's going to probably be done above 85%, 85 to 95% for a single repetition effort. Again, at a, you know, one to three reps in reserve sort of range. And that's for really drilling down on low velocity, maximal strength development. That's kind of like the, I don't know, central paradigm of our strength programming sort of idea right now, based on the evidence, our experience and, uh, and, uh, whatnot. So, um, after that, after selecting the intensity, which determines the types of adaptations that you're likely to get, there is a dose-dependent relationship between training volume and strength improvement, meaning that the higher the dose that you give somebody of training volume, provided the exercise selection is appropriate, the exercise intensity is appropriate, the proximity to failure is appropriate, the higher the dose that you can give them that they'll do, the greater strength improvement they are likely to have, with one caveat. They need to be able to tolerate that training volume. If the training volume is far too high, it outstrips their recovery resources, puts them in this recovery hole that they of despair that they can never get out of. Well, it's too much. But ideally, in a perfect world, they're able to sort of train at a higher volume, um, and more volume tends to drive more adaptations. You wouldn't want to do less volume unless you were previously overshooting um, on on the total volume. Uh, so the TLDR of this is many different rep ranges can be used to drive strength improvement. Although in a perfect world, you would have at least some exposure in rep ranges that are specific to your test. So if it's a one RM, you should probably be doing some singles. Many different exercises can be used for strength development. Although again, you'd want at least some exposure that is specific to the test or how you're uh, analyzing strength improvement. And the proximity to failure is variable. There's significant, there's a pretty big range there, but generally you should be somewhere in that four to five reps in reserve or closer to failure uh, with maybe some higher intensity practice that's one to three reps in reserve. So RP seven to nine uh, for singles. And again, finally, there's this dose dependent relationship with training volume. Austin, anything you feel like I missed there in our sort of 
how to get no, stronger I a, overview. I, I think it's a nice, yeah, I think, I think it's a nice summary of how we think about things and how, like, if we're working with, say, a new client who doesn't have a whole bunch of training experience, the overarching kind of principles that we may be thinking about when we are, are, are getting them going in a strength focused program. Um, of course, if they're a rank beginner, then that's a, there are some other considerations that we've talked about on other podcasts with respect to like how specialized do we need them to be up front. But yeah. if we have somebody who's ready to, you know, specialize, so to speak, but may not have a ton of experience with specialized training, then I think that this description fits that really well. And, and I think it's important to mention these ideas because of how often we get asked questions about like, you know, thinking that again, and I know I've talked about this before, how how um we come to very specific programming recommendations and it's like how did you decide 70 percent versus 72 percent or something like that and it's like honestly it's mostly educated guessing and experimentation once we're within these general principles that you just laid out then you're like in the ballpark of a reasonably good you know general setup and there's a ton of uh, experimentation to figure out more of an individual kind of uh kind of uh setup that they're going to respond better to so i could say for let's say the two of us for example mm -hmm. both of our training programs when we're in more powerlifting mode which is neither of us at the moment but that's fine mm -hmm. sure <laughs> fits all of these things um but there are some differences there are some exercise selection things that you prefer that i don't um and then repetitions in reserve, you tend to go a little lower, maybe a little closer to failure. I tend to go a little further away from failure. Um, and then training volume, I think is maybe similar to maybe you might go a little bit higher because you also might have a bit more time to train. <laughs> so, sure. so, so, but, but in general, they both fall under all of these principles. It's just individualization that we've come to over a long time of experimentation, which is what the process is when we're working with clients anyway. Yeah. One, the one note in there, and, and that was at the beginning of, uh, your, your, last statement was that, you know, for somebody who's not ready to specialize, so like a rank novice to training, there are no beginner powerlifters in my estimation, right? When somebody's like, what's a good beginner powerlifting program? It's like, uh, that's not going to look any different than a beginner bodybuilders program versus beginner like resistance training in general program. The idea is like develop these the broad base of physical development, training tolerance, motor pattern skills, you know, all this other sort of stuff. And then you can apply that specifically. So if somebody had been training for, you know, three months, four months, five months, et cetera, on a program with multiple different exercises, rep ranges, proximities to failure, built a conditioning base, et cetera, at that point, I'd feel more comfortable kind of special dipping our feet into that specialization water. Um, and so the beginner powerlifter has really been training for, you know, some number of months prior same thing with bodybuilding right it's like oh i want to be a bodybuilder it's like cool what's your training history it's like i haven't like okay great so we're just gonna like build this base that we could apply that specifically and i feel like it's setting people up for this long-term sort of success with again varied exercises varied rep ranges varied proximities to failure conditioning base auto regulation all that sort of stuff and just enjoying it right because just you just want people to get bit by the bug like man i like this versus like no you have to do this for optimal progression it's like optimal progression in five months who gives a shit like just <laughs> i've never seen somebody like they train for five months i'm like this person's gonna be a world beater i just don't know where somebody's gonna go after five months okay rant off now so we just talked about what types of training drives strength developments let's talk about what type of training drives hypertrophy hypertrophy improvements so muscle size changes in response to training by becoming larger hypertrophy or smaller atrophy, uh, the main programming variables that determine muscular hypertrophy are as follows. So one mechanical loading, you got to load the muscle tissue in some way in order to get it to adapt. So usually that's by resistance training. So taking a muscle through a fairly large range of motion in a loaded pattern. Uh, although there is some data on loaded stretching showing that it does tend to drive, uh, some hypertrophy response. Although if we're trying to maximize hypertrophy response, it's not likely to be just from stretching. You imagine like, oh yeah, we're going to build this guy's lats up just by doing weight he's gonna hangs. Have a, he's, gonna have, he's just going to have a stretching day. Flex arm <laughs> hang or whatever. It's like, nah. I mean, I think when you see the data on stretching, for example, and its effect on hypertrophy, that's sort of baked into resistance training. Like at some element, some part of the movement, there's a weighted stretch at the eccentric you yeah, know, muscle I would, lengthening. I also I also wouldn't be surprised if there's like an attenuation of that effect. I will say I've not examined this literature very closely, mainly because I don't find it <laughs> super interesting, but I wouldn't sure, be surprised yeah. if, if that effect is kind of attenuated with more training experience and exposure. If you, if oh, you yeah. get more of that with less training experience and then somebody's super trained and then they go and 
do a weighted stretch, not going to be like, you know, packing on a bunch of muscle, but well, I don't well, know. That's what, I think you see that too. Also it's manifested in like when they compare eccentric only versus concentric only training in trained individuals. And you see in general that people do better with both phases of lifting. So not just one or the other. And it's like, yeah, duh. Because <laughs> it's more. Because <laughs> it's more. Yes, exactly. So mechanical loading, got to do that. It's going to be really hard to make your biceps grow if you never do any biceps training at all. Whether It doesn't necessarily need to be direct like biceps curls, but some rowing, some chin-ups, some pull-ups, some other sort of movements that it, where you're actually requiring the biceps uh, muscles to create force through a range of motion. Yeah, you can't just get it from squatting. Uh, you also need some motor unit recruitment. And so previously there was this like, size principle proxy association were like, oh, the heavier weight that you use requires more motor units to fire and therefore you're training more muscle mass and all this other sort of stuff and it's going to make it grow more. But what we know now is that at relatively low uh, intensity, so like 30%, 40% of a 1RM, you're still getting near maximal motor unit recruitment, certainly above 50% of your 1RM, it's near maximal motor unit recruitment. And what happens then to create more force, the signal sent to the muscle fibers actually increases in speed and intensity. So you just get a bigger signal and it tells the muscle not only contract like more frequently, but also just harder. Um, so that temporal signaling of the muscle, uh, the motor unit itself uh, makes the muscle create more force. So you don't necessarily have to load it heavier per se. Uh, it just needs to be heavy enough to stimulate uh, motor unit recruitment, which again is like 50% of your one RM and, uh, you got to get somewhere close to failure. So like four to five reps in reserve, but so I don't in think gen I in general, trying helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah, kind of what, you know, sometimes I'll coach like, you know, maximum, you know, concentric effort and velocity and stuff like that. And there's probably a role for that impacting recruitment in this way through, uh, yeah. to, to the extent that there are volitional components to that. I think you can uh, impact them a bit with trying. <laughs> yeah. I just think like that, uh, right now I don't feel confident in the like effective reps sort of paradigm where it's like, you're only getting maximum motor unit recruitment, maximum muscle stimulation at the last five reps or whatever of a set. I think you're getting muscle stimulation at every rep and, uh, the closer and closer you get to failure, just causes you to have to deal with more and more fatigue. Um, more on that in a bit. Uh, okay. So range of motion is another factor. And in general, we see that larger ranges of motion stimulate more hypertrophy than smaller ranges of motion. So if you compared like a quarter squat and you resolve that to whatever angle you see for hip flexion and knee flexion and ankle dorsiflexion compared to a below parallel squat, we would expect the below parallel squat to generate more hypertrophy throughout the lower uh, limb segment. But if you're comparing like a squat to parallel versus squat to one inch below parallel, I would challenge anyone to find a sample size large enough <laughs> similar contrast and exposure kind of situation yeah yeah ex exactly so more is probably better up then there's a point of diminishing returns certainly so just in general larger range of motion compared to smaller range of motion there's some study i believe was on floor press versus a full range motion bench press that showed the same hypertrophy outcomes although when people stopped training the uh muscle mass cross-sectional area actually seemed to dissipate faster in the floor press people than the, mm. yeah, but I don't really care because we expect you to be training forever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's range of motion, metabolic stress. Uh, this tends to be an accumulation of metabolic fatigue byproducts, things like lactate, hydrogen ions, potassium ions, calcium ions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is a theor theoretical sort of uh, input into muscular hypertrophy. We don't know all the ins and outs of this. Um, some of this is related to like the pump that you experience. Some people will experience that, uh, particularly on short rest periods and depending on their conditioning levels and previous exposures. I just don't know that I feel super confident that like, yeah, you got to catch a pump. You got to like have some metabolic stress and you certainly don't need to measure it. Uh, but what I will say, if you're really trying to gain the most amount of muscle mass possible, you're really trying to quote unquote optimize, even though we don't really love that term and you never catch a pump, I think, I think you're probably missing a little bit there. Yeah, and I so agree. I think it, it's this sort of concept we'll refer to as like an artifact of training, a coincidence. It happens, uh, sometimes, but it's not necessarily the cause if that yep. makes sense. It's yep. just coincidental. Uh, and then fi two final things. One is muscle damage. Again, if you are not training enough to cause any muscular damage, you are not signaling this immune-based cascade to sort of signal 
muscle satellite cells and muscle repair mechanisms, muscle remodeling, all this other sort of stuff. So it's probably not driving as much muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein accretion at the level of the muscle itself, making it bigger. Uh, and the last part is training volume. And again, there's a dose dependent relationship between training volume and uh, muscular hypertrophy, which is so robust, in fact, that if you're comparing two resistance training programs to each other, and you're trying to say, see which one drives more hypertrophy, they need to be volume matched. That's like just a standard in the field because we just know that there's such a tight relationship between training volume and uh, muscle mass gains. Uh, again, with the caveat though, if the training volume is too much for somebody to handle, effectively they'll be throwing all of their resources at just dealing with the training stress. They are unable to thrive in that situation and actually accrete new muscle mass, more muscle mass. And so there is a there are situations, and certainly this is in the literature, where People are doing like 27 sets of biceps curls. And you're like, oh man, look at all this volume. Uh, and they don't actually grow any more than people you doing 18 sets of biceps curls. But the 18 sets of biceps curls drew, uh, uh, created more muscle cross-sectional area in the biceps than nine sets of biceps curls. And you're like, huh. So there's some sort of upper limit, we'll say. And that's more related to your training history, it seems like, than anything else. If you're well-trained, then yeah, pushing the volume envelope seems reasonable. But if you're just starting out, doing all of the exercises and all of the sets and all of the reps is probably more than you can thrive in, even though you can like tolerate it, if that makes sense. Does, mm -hmm. it, does, that, does that jibe with, with kind of the way you think about it? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think that uh, it... it particularly for people who learn to chase the pump, it becomes kind of easy to do more than, than is appropriate for you at a given stage of your training. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, since we're trying to nudge people towards training for the, for the very long term, then, you know, you can get there and get to the point where, you know, you can do a lot of training, you can tolerate a lot of training, you can enjoy it if that's, if that's your jam. Um, and, and, uh, do fine on that at that point yeah yeah clearly the bigger problem in the general public is like not being physically active right, right? so I, I hesitate to caution people from like doing too much but, but given the segment of yeah there's a segment of the population who are much more likely to be listening to this podcast than the rest yeah, yeah. Um, for whom that that is a consideration and, and and we see this i would say most often i've had some like regular performance coaching clients where i you know i get started with them and I'm like, all right, let me see your training program that you've been doing. And then they send it to me and I'm like, holy shit, we need to take this down. Actually, yeah. like right off the bat, I look at it and I'm like, this is, I can tell already this is wildly inappropriate. And I've cut it down by, you know, a chop 40% off of their training volume or something. Um, and then other situations where it comes up even more frequently is in the rehab realm where people yeah. are doing too much too soon um, in general, or they're doing too much for their given, you know, their, their situation, as far as like recovery resources might be a student around exam time, start getting aches and pains, start slamming a bunch of ibuprofen, trying to push through it. And I'm like, the dose is all wrong here. We got to pull this yeah. back and, and get it appropriate for you right now. Yeah. People ask all the time, like, how do I know if I'm doing too much? Right. And it's like, okay, so if you're, if you're seeing a ton of progress, right, you're like, man, I'm getting stronger. I feel like I'm gaining muscle mass and my measurements over the last few months are increasing. I don't feel beat up going into the gym that much, like out of the ordinary. Uh, I'm still highly motivated to train this, that, and the other. It's like, this does not apply to you. Like yeah. carry on. Stop but, complaining. <laughs> but if you're, if there's an actual reason to troubleshoot yeah. and it's like, I'm not seeing progress, even though I feel like I'm doing a lot or I'm feeling really sore, beat up. Um, my, I dread going to the gym sometimes this, that, and the other, like those all can be indicators that people are doing too much. I see this all the time at the current gym that I'm training at. And these people are doing like 15 exercises for a given session and like, like tons of sets. And I'm like, man, I can appreciate the work ethic. Y'all are really going after it, but like, you probably can't handle this at this time, which is, which is good. The good news is you can do less and get more. <laughs> well, I want that trade. That's the greatest trade trade deal of all time. Uh, so in any case, as far as train, uh, what types of training drive hypertrophy improvements, the TLDR, uh, you can use many different rep ranges. So anything from like a set of three to a set of 30, all viable, although they must load the muscle or muscles uh, that are being assessed for growth. You could use many different exercises, far more variable in exercise selection than strength um, in general. Uh, although again, for hypertrophy, we're thinking maybe more isolation exercises for fatigue management, given the dose dependent relationship with training volume. Basically you can use 
more isolation exercises and more volume because there's less muscle mass being used, lighter weights, et cetera. So if you compare like a squat to a leg extension and its effect on quadriceps hypertrophy, how many sets of squats can you do versus how many sets of leg extensions can you do? You can do way more sets of leg extensions because you're not loading the trunk. You're not really using your hamstrings so much. You're not really using, you know, uh, uh, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Right. So, and then, uh, the proximity to failure is again, variable which is similar to strength training, but generally uh, somewhere less than four to five reps in reserve uh, with some higher intensity exposures, one to three reps in reserve. So RP seven and nine or even 10 for either short stints or for isolation work and or for people who are new to training. Um, and again, there's that same dose dependent relationship with training volume. So again, if you compare those TLDRs for strength training and hypertrophy, they look, it's like a pretty big overlap. Like the Venn diagram is like pretty robust in the middle. Um, and so the next kind of topic we have here is like, where do they overlap both hypertrophy training and strength training use resistance training exercises to load the musculoskeletal system through a dynamic range of motion across a variety of rep ranges using a similar proximity to failure and have a dose dependent relationship with training volume. Uh, and so from that, I think that most strength training programs should produce an improvement in lean body mass, given the right environment, nutrition, sleep, and overall training responsiveness. Similarly, most bodybuilding type or hypertrophy focused training programs should produce an increases, uh, should produce an increase in strength again, given the right training environment and responsiveness. And so the way I think about this is like, again, the lean body mass gained from a strength focused program, like a powerlifting program, the lean body mass increases that you see there are likely an artifact or a coincidence of a training program the person's responding to and all these similar variables that we know cause muscle growth. It's not the cause of the strength increase. It's just, it happens. It's a coincidence. Similarly from a hyper and a hypertrophy focused training program, people are able to add weight to the bar or to the machine, to the, you know, whatever, uh, they can do more reps on calisthenics or body weight exercises. So they got stronger. It's not the cause of them getting bigger and getting bigger. is not the cause of them getting stronger. It's just, it happens at the same time because of this massive overlap. Um, you're basically just creating muscular tension over a range of motion with similar proximities to failure. And you still have this dose dependent relationship with training volume. And so it makes sense to me that both of these things occur at the same time, provided the overall training program is appropriate for the individual. Is that, that jibe with, with your experience, with your understanding? I, I think so. I, I don't know how strongly, uh, you intend to, um, I don't know if dismiss is the right word, but when, when, when it's suggested that it is entirely coincidental, it almost dismisses the possibility of a causal relationship between something like hypertrophy and, and strength. And I don't know that I'm prepared to fully dismiss the possibility <laughs> sure, of, yeah. of, of hypertrophy, uh, you know, having a causal contribution towards uh, strength performance. In fact, I know I'm not prepared to, to dismiss that altogether, <laughs> fact. but I think that the relationship between the two, uh, and this has just come up more often in, in recent years should be uh, uh, questioned a bit insofar as it is probably not as strong of a relationship as has historically been been thought. And, and those historic kind of perspectives have led some people to suggest things like, you know, you have to get, you know, do dedicated, you know, quote unquote, hypertrophy training, whatever that's going sure. to be like. Or gain a bunch of weight. Drive, or yes, or, or get huge so that you can then, you know, uh, increase your strength. And, and I think that there, we have good reason to, you know, more uh, apply even more skepticism to, to those sorts of training recommendations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that there's definitely the more trained people get, there does seem to be a, a correlation between the amount of muscle they have and their strength performance. The causality of those two, I, I think there is, uh, it's plausible that there is some degree of it, uh, causation between the two, how strong that is, is probably weaker than we used to think. If that's yeah. a, probably an adequate summary of where, where I fall at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I would fully sign on, uh, that if you were trying to predict how strong someone was in a particular task, that they're the amount of lean body mass they carry is the number one predictor there. And that is reflected in multiple cross-sectional data sets where they just, again, at one point in time, look at how much lean body mass do people carry? How strong are they on a given task? All other things being, all else being equal. And yeah, you see people with more lean body mass being stronger. And to me, that just suggests like, yeah, they've got more lean body mass, more contractile tissue, good to go. But that's at a given period of time. It doesn't necessarily mean that if they were to gain more lean body mass, that they would get stronger than if they didn't gain more lean body mass. Um, but yeah, we see that in all sorts of cross-sectional data. And I think that's probably where this idea comes from overall. You, know, you say, oh, look, they got more lean body mass. They're stronger. We see that in data comparing men and women. Um, you know, Men on average are 
you know, stronger than women. Um, and as far as absolute strength goes, and depending on who you read and what the study design was, et cetera, it can be anywhere from like, you know, 40% stronger on lower body exercises, 60% stronger on upper body exercises, 20 and 30% depends on the actual study design. But when you actually correct for amount of lean body mass, that tends to disappear in general. Um, the one time it doesn't really disappear entirely is when you're looking at upper body strength performance in women. And it's because, yeah, even if you're correcting for total lean body mass, the lean body mass, they just don't have it in their upper body as much. The women don't have it in the upper body as much. So you can correct for lean body mass. They just, it's just not there <laughs> in their upper body. And so you're like, yeah, well, their strength performance and upper body tests like bench press still aren't equivalent because the lean body mass that they do have tends to be more in the lower body. And that has to do with all sorts of stuff, androgen receptor density and location and fat mass distribution, this, that, and the other body types, uh, other anthropometric sort of factors. And there's even plenty of, you know, individual variation, even among women, obviously, where some have more for sure, uh, lean body mass accretion in the upper body compared to others. So yeah. tons of variation, everything's really messy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, ju I, I do know again, that if somebody carry more lean body mass, I would predict that they would be stronger than somebody with less lean body mass. I just don't know that improving lean body mass in and of itself is going to drive a uh, more significant improvement in strength than maintenance. Um, but I will say as far, just to get back to your earlier point, like, Oh, how confident are you that you're dismissing this? <laughs> I, I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying that if you're on a good strength and conditioning program, it should be making you bigger. And so like, if you're not getting, gaining muscle mass and any appreciable form over the year, over the years, I think you're just not on a very good program. And I would not predict that a very good program <laughs> would make you that much stronger if, if at all. Yeah. I so, think that, I think that, you know, it, it's kind of like if, if you had a, a client or a friend or somebody who said that they've been doing this training program for whatever, six months, a year, and they're making absurd amounts of strength gains, like getting so much stronger. And they're like, they look no different than when they started. That would be an unusual <laughs> situation. Yeah. That would be very much an outlier, right? It's a, it's or a Tanner somebody, Segeer. There you go. Or somebody who like puts piles of muscle on over the course of their training program. And they're like, but I can't lift anything heavier. Again, it's like, that's a little weird. Like I would question this. Yeah. <laughs> if you guys don't know who Tanner Segeer is, I will I will put his Wikipedia page link in the description below. Tanner Segeer, we heard we learned about this guy from Randall Strawson's Iron Mind videos. So this guy was a seventy-seven kilo lifter. So what is that? One hundred and sixty-five pounds ish, something like yeah. that. Yeah. And in two thousand four, at the Athens game, uh, Summer Olympics, he snatched one hundred and seventy-two and a half kilos, so three hundred and seventy-nine pounds, and he clean and jerked two hundred two and a half kilos, so four forty-five pounds for the gold medal. And yeah, now they've shaken up the, the weight classes for Olympic weightlifting. So now it's an 81 kilo class, but he's still only like four kilos off the world record. He is known. He was dubbed by Randall Strawson, this PhD guy <laughs> filming all these training sets as the muscleless wonder. He, he looks like a pizza <laughs> delivery guy. And it's like, this dude's going to snatch nearly 400 pounds. Um, obviously that's an outlier, but yes. overall, yes. I think if a program is well suited for an individual, so not too much or not too little total training stress, it is likely to produce both hypertrophy improvements and strength improvements. And you can obviously prioritize one or the other based on the elements of the training program. Um, so that's kind of where they overlap. Uh, as far as, you know, where do they diverge? Um, hypertrophy focused training is likely to skew to higher rep ranges, more isolation work, and a wider variety of movement patterns with the slightly closer proximity to failure than maximal strength focused training. And it's just because it can, right? You're not testing somebody's one RM strength, so you have to do singles. You're not testing somebody's squat, bench, and deadlift, so you have to do a lot of frequency and exposure to squat, bench, and deadlift. You're like, I just want to get bigger. So I might do some squats, some deadlifts or variations thereof, some bench press or variations thereof. But you can also include all this other, dedicate all these other training resources to like not just improving your SBD. Um, and so because you don't have to compromise for the stated goal, you get this broader base of physical development. And that's kind of how they diverge. So this, this overall raises some questions regarding the relationship between lean body mass and strength performance. And again, that longstanding assumption has been that an increase in muscle cross-sectional size increases the potential for muscular force production. And this has been used to justify recommendations for like aggressive weight gain in strength athletes. Like, oh, you should just gain a ton of weight so you can get big and then get strong because you're getting bigger. Uh, or, you know, you got to do a bodybuilding block to gain muscle mass so you can, you know, lift more weight on the squat bench and deadlift. 
what if we set up some interesting study designs to really address this? Like, then let's let's see what happens. So, could you set up a study design that made made people stronger but not bigger, and then like see what happens? So, there's some interesting data where they they have people train one side of their body, uh, for example, uh, and then they compare. Uh, strength results at the end and hypertrophy results at the end and, and see what happens. So this one study, um, there are two, two groups resistance trained, but one of the group's program was designed to minimize muscle growth. <laughs> the <laughs> Tanner Sigurds program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, basically they had uh, the group perform a 1RM test of their biceps curl on one arm uh, and they performed a 1RM test uh uh, to do so. Um, and then on the other arm, they did also did a one RM test and then three sets of 10. So basically one arm's just doing singles. The other arm's doing a single and three sets of 10. They did this for 21 days straight. Can you imagine max maxing out on your biceps curl every day for three weeks? Uh, the arm that did three sets of 10 plus the one RM testing grew significantly. It was much larger than the other arm. Uh, but there was no difference in one RMs at the end of the study, they both improved their one RM the exact same, although one arm didn't get any bigger. And you're like, hmm, interesting. Is there any more data on this, Jordan? Tell me more. A similar study was done on 38 untrained individuals who were randomized to either a hypertrophy or a strength group. The hypertrophy group did four maximal sets of eight to 12 repetitions, so RPE 10, on knee extension and chest press, while the strength group did five sets of one RM max attempts each visit on the same exercises. Each group trained twice per week for the eight-week study duration. The hypertrophy group, the group doing eight uh, to 12 reps uh, for four sets at RP 10, saw significant improvements in muscular size, whereas the strength group did not improve their muscular size. But both groups improved their one RM performance with no difference between the groups. So like one group got bigger, one group did not get any bigger, and their 1RM both improved the same amount after eight weeks. And so you're like, hmm, maybe, particularly in the short term, right? It's an eight-week study, this time three-week study, the last time. Maybe these smaller changes in lean body mass are not necessarily predictive of like strength performance. And I, I think to me, I, that seems like an easy like slam dunk. It's like, look, if you're telling me somebody gains a half kilo of muscle, a kilo of muscle, the small amount, negligible, really amount of muscle mass in a two month, three month, whatever period of time or less, I wouldn't expect necessarily any strength performance difference. If you're talking about 10 kilo differences, well, at that point, I feel like we're just doing another cross-sectional study where it's like, oh, you got 22 more pounds of muscle, which of course you're likely to be stronger. But yeah. that there's that's also a training history that took place to make that 10 kilo gain happen. Right. And you may, and, and if it wasn't a cross-sectional thing, then you may be looking at hyper responders. I mean, yep. I think that, I think that you, you mentioned earlier kind of all the different um, ways that uh, all the different mechanisms that are involved in force production. And, and it was kind of interesting hearing you talk through that because it's actually the same way that I teach my residents and medical students. When we have a patient who comes in with weakness, how to figure out where the weakness is or where, where the problem is from the central nervous system, brain, spinal cord, peripheral nerves, Mus uh, ne the neuromuscular junction, the, the muscle uh, itself, the tendon, and then, of course, as the tendon attaches to, to bone to, to, to move your skeleton around. And so it should make sense that like adaptations are occurring at multiple levels of that. And just the muscle mass is just one piece yeah. um, of that thing. And so it is, it, it, it should be clear that it is possible to gain strength in other ways, independent of muscle mass changes. Um, it's just that what we're trying to tease apart is like, to what extent do these muscle mass changes directly cause some of the strength improvements that can be seen or, or what proportion of strength improvement can be attributed to changes in muscle mass. And there's a lot of, a lot of different ways to, to look at it. And, and in, as you're mentioning, even just the timescale can, can, uh, can be a variable that's relevant in interpreting these results. Yeah. There's the additional studies on like blood flow restriction training. I also find super interesting. So in general, they have people use like 30% of their one RM put a tourniquet on their proximal thigh or proximal arm. So near, you know, right up near the groin for the legs or right up near the shoulder for the arms. And they'll have them do biceps curls or triceps press downs or leg extensions, leg curls, or even body weight exercises. And these people will in fact grow some muscle tissue. And depending on how long the study is, they tend to grow more and more muscle mass as the study goes on just because it takes a lot of time to do this, but they don't get any stronger. And you're like, damn, they gained muscle mass, but didn't get stronger. But I thought it was, a one-to-one -one relationship or super highly correlated. And it's like, that's, that's where I'm kind of trying to break that association. I, I, I would agree with you that I, I think there, the correlation is 
uh, strong. The causation, I'm less certain on. Uh, and then again, relatively small changes in muscle mass in a short period of time. I'm like, eh, I don't think it's causative or likely predictive of a strength performance improvement. I would be more confident in saying, yeah, if your training's going well and it's well suited to your goals, that's probably more predictive than any small changes in lean body mass. Yeah. You're probably responding like across all layers, uh, levels of that system to generate force. Yep. Yep. I agree. Uh, the fun, the, my most fun study that I'm bringing to the table here, uh, this was by Basin et al. This is 96, I believe. Uh, basically they gave, they split this group of, uh, men, they were aged 18 to 40 into four different groups. Group one got three times the testosterone replacement dose of testosterone. I believe it was cypionate. Um, so they're taking like high dose anabolic steroids, um, three to four times higher than what you would normally get just to replace your T levels. And they resistance trained. They did squat bench press, lat pull downs, rows, et cetera, like pretty decent program. They were doing like 70 to 80% of one RM. Uh, so that's group one, high dose anabolic steroids plus resistance training group two, uh, no resistance training, but still high dose anabolic steroids group three placebo and resistance training group four, no resistance training and the placebo, uh, frown face. Interestingly, when you compared the amount of lean body mass gained over 10 weeks, the high dose anabolic steroids and the resistance training, they gained six kilos of lean body mass. Now that was assessed via a dunk tank, the hydrostatic weighing. So not like the current gold standard of a DEXA, but still pretty reliable. Um, whereas the group that got the placebo, uh, but still resistance trained only gained two kilos. So there's a threefold difference in lean body mass gained over 10 weeks. No strength differences though between the between the two groups on a squat or bench press one RM, and you're like, what? But that's a big four kilos, eight pounds of London broil slathered all over <laughs> my body, added to my body. You tell me I'm not any stronger. I'm like, eh, it's just not a big enough difference. I mean, if it was twenty kilos, or ten kilos, fifty, I would likely be, you know, shifting towards. Oh yeah, there's probably a difference here. But I'm just like, man, maybe four kilos isn't even a big enough difference. And again, just as you said, that's inter individual variation and in training responsiveness, strength development, all those mm -hmm. multitude of adaptations required to do so. Yeah, it kind of kind of checks out. So, um, all right, Austin, here's a question. Given all of this, do strength athletes, so people principally in, you know, concerned with improving their one rep max, the three rep max, five rep max, whatever, or strength for sport um, with respect to maximizing force production, do they need to do bodybuilding blocks? I would say no, they don't need to do them. They can certainly play a beneficial role, but I think the roles that they can potentially play would not be... I would not frame it through the lens of we need to do this in order to facilitate your one rep max performance goals. Rather, it would be things like you need a break from the grind of mm -hmm. <laughs> one rep max powerlifting focus training, which uh, relatable at the moment. Yeah. Um, other things would be aches and pains that are, you know, overuse kind of syndromes from higher specificity training that when you're doing, you know, if you're training towards a particular test, like a one rep max, you're going to be doing a lot of that particular thing, which is, a, you know, going to increase your risk for overuse type syndromes. And so backing off doing more variation. Um, so oftentimes a lot of our rehab programs for folks often end up looking, especially Charlie's because, you know, that's what people yeah. go to the man for. <laughs> yeah. uh, end up being a lot more bodybuilding, a lot more pump work, getting people feeling good, leaving the gym, feeling better than when they went in, not, you know, destroying themselves, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with things that are making them feel worse. And then using that to build positive momentum, getting them back, back to the kind of training they do want to do. Um, and potentially, you know, at that point you could reconsider how is my, you know, strength focused training setup looking like, is it something that needs to be modified to reduce the risk of this happening again? So a lot of psychological stuff, taking a break from, from the regular training, uh, rehab aches and pains related stuff, but not specifically to improve the top end strength that somebody might be looking for, uh, up front. Yeah. If somebody needed like a psychological break from doing a squat bench, deadlift, heavy powerlifting focused workout, I think doing a bodybuilding block will say is likely better than it's certainly better than not training. Yep. Or if you were like, Oh no, we're going to do a conditioning focused block probably better than that too, from a specificity standpoint. Um, and then in the rehab setting, I view it, you're, you have this tool in bodybuilding type training where you can sort of ratchet up or at least maintain the total training stress that somebody needs to not only preserve their existing adaptations, but also like generate some new ones, uh, in a way that is not that threatening or like more controllable, I, I think. Um, basically, you can use leverage isolation exercises that have generally little carryover or less carryover, certainly to squat bench deadlift performance, but you can use those to sort of shore up 
training stress losses from not being able to squat as much, for example, in an individual with knee pain or low back pain or deadlift as much if they have, they're going through low back pain, like rehab settings. So pretty unique tool there. My, the caveats here that I would list is that if you are a power lifter who's listening to this and you're like, I could use a psychological break. I could use a bodybuilding block. Yeah, I'm on board with that. Seeing you guys do all this high rep stuff, getting thick and juicy for the winter. <laughs> I well, here's the here's the issue. I think that if you are going to run a bodybuilding program for like four or five weeks, I would not ex- uh, expect appreciable muscle mass gains because it's just too short of a timeline. And in fact, when you look at bodybuilding training and its results on muscle mass and like the time course it takes it usually starts to pop up in weeks four or five, six, because effectively you kind of have this run-in period, at least the way I think about it. You have this run-in period where you're like, okay, I get this new novel type training uh, and I need to like adapt to it, get it to be able to tolerate it so I can then thrive in it uh, because my work capacity, my training tolerance has all gone up. And then, uh, yeah, then you can start growing after that. But if you're just going to do it for four weeks, like I wouldn't expect, oh, my arms didn't grow. It's like, of course they didn't. It's four weeks, dude. Like, yeah, not, not that much. Even honestly, like if you did like a six month bodybuilding thing, if you gained two kilos out of that, three kilos out of that. Oh, cool. Of lean body mass. That's like a pretty big gain. I mean, if you gained yeah. a bunch of body weight in the interim, like that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but See yeah, our last podcast on fatty liver disease. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Correct. Um, the other thing I'll say is that I think if you're coming from a powerlifting program and then you switch to a bodybuilding program, you run the risk of doing too much, right? Cause you're like, Oh, I've got all this energy. I feel, you know, good. I can just do all these drop sets or sets to failure or whatever. And it's like, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Um, and I'm, I'm dealing with that right now. Cause I feel great. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should do a few extra sets of triceps, press downs or biceps curls because I can. And I'm like, yeah, but I have, I wasn't really doing that stuff before. So I'm not really well suited to add a bunch of volume. In fact, I should probably just maximize my growth and responsiveness to this existing volume. And then I can ratchet it up. But, you know, I could do more squats, <laughs> but that's not really what I'm like. It's, it's like the situational satiety sort of problem, yeah, right? right? I, I don't want more chicken. I want more cake. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of the caveat there for people coming off a powerlifting program who are getting into bodybuilding. Um, the other question here, Austin, should physique athletes, so bodybuilding uh, figure, uh, what is the classic men's physique? The thing that Seabum just, just won. I know you're really tuned in. I don't know, man. (laughs) Yeah. All right. The one where they're in board shorts, classic physique, I believe it is. Should those individuals do strength focused blocks? Uh, I think that the answer is similar here, if not more forceful. Um, right. uh, I think that in order to get the best muscle gain that they, uh, uh, that they possibly can, which is their goal, then no, I don't think that they need to do strength focused, like one rep max focused kind of, kind of training. Um, and I think that it has probably less utility for that kind of a, a lifter or, or an athlete, um, compared to the potential utility of a bodybuilding style, you know, hypertrophy uh, period for a strength athlete for the reasons that we mentioned earlier, be it psychological break, you know, the, the probable, I don't have data to support this, but probable, uh, slightly increased risk of overuse syndromes just from the higher specificity that the strength athlete is doing. Mm-hmm. Not really as much of a thing in this realm, although, of course, plenty of hypertrophy focused lifters and bodybuilders and stuff can certainly get tendinopathies and overuse syndromes and things like that, which would require, you know, uh, management that is similar. Um, but but I think that the answer for somebody who's experiencing something like that, who's like, oh, I'm in, I'm a, doing a hypertrophy bodybuilding style program. I have this ache or pain. I'm typically not saying, oh, yeah, let's go do some top end strength, like one rep max focus training. So it's like it it, it, it doesn't tend to go in the other direction quite as much um, if they want to, if they're into it, if it motivates them, it gets them going. They want to do it for a similar psychological break. I think that's the main that's the main situation where it has some utility here. But I just see that happening less often among folks who are in this scene. Um, a lot of folks who, who are very much into bodybuilding, they actually tend to probably for, for their benefit to their benefit, care less about <laughs> like top end one rep max performance. Whereas, you know, the more powerlifting types are, uh, you know, perhaps pathologically <laughs> focused on sure. one rep max focus strength and we need to pull them away from it a little bit more often. Um, yeah. so yeah, that's, that's, that's my, that's my, my general sense of things on this, on this question. Yeah, I, I can see maybe like a, a from a program design standpoint, the sort of like natural sort of tendency to to shift towards lower volume, heavier weights. Maybe it just ends up being more strength focused. Like you're like, all right, I was doing squats for sets of eight to ten to start up this block out with. I 
did that for seven or eight weeks, saw some good results. And now I'm going to switch to sets of three to six and then, you know, whatever. And, and, and I could see also a utility for like periods of lower volume exposure to sort of like, okay, we're going to kind of free up some training resources for recovery. We're going to free up some, um, volume sensitivity as far as that exists. And we're going to do like, yeah, maybe <laughs> right. And, and do a lower volume block. And that could be a, an, a utility for this. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think it's probably less, even less useful for physique athletes to do less sort of strength focused block, unless they just want to, if yeah, they don't want exactly. to, I would just do a lower volume bridge two to three yep. weeks and then pop back into something that makes more sense based on their goals. Mm -hmm. My caveat here, similar to the uh, one on powerlifters doing bodybuilding blocks to, you know, watch out for the, the volume, it's just going crazy on that. Uh, watch out for session RP. And the proximity to failure, if you've been doing bodybuilding training and now you're going to introduce a bunch of, instead of squatting once a week, I'm going to squat three times a week instead of doing deadlifts or some variation thereof once a week. Now I'm going to do it twice or three times a week. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, so you could really kind of overcook yourself. Even if the total volume is lower, you're just not used to it. So just, you know, if your session RP stuff is climbing eights, nines, that's how you're rating it at the end of each session. Eh, I would dial back the intensity and or yeah. volume and or exposure. You just, just a little change, a little change, baby. <sighs> All right. So, you know, we come to the end of this whole thing. We've been on this yapping on the horn here for an hour. Do you have to gain muscle mass to get stronger? I don't feel confident saying that. There are plenty of anecdotes, uh, anecdotes suggesting that larger individuals who are carrying greater amounts of muscle mass tend to lift heavier weights. Uh, the exact uh, relationship between lean body mass increases and strength performance seems to be more complex and remains an active area of research and debate. Jeremy, Dr. Jeremy Lenicky's work on this has been pretty interesting. I don't know that this is settled and well, I know that it's not settled and people keep arguing about this. Um, in my estimation, you know, the amount of lean body mass that you gain from a good strength training program is an indicator of training program responsiveness overall. Um, similarly, the amount of strength you gain from a hypertrophy focused program is probably an indicator of how well you respond to that type of program. A good program, quote unquote, uh, for either will likely produce both. Uh, again, provided that the training environment is set up for success. You can, of course, bias the programming one way or the other. So for powerlifting, it'd be more squat bench deadlift focused. You'd have some singles in there. You'd have less movement variation uh, overall and less isolation exercises. Or for bodybuilding, you'd have the exact opposite. Um, but, you know, or you could compromise both. And that's like our power building templates. So if you're kind of looking for like practically, how does this all shake out, you know, from a programming perspective, we have bodybuilding templates. We have powerlifting templates. We have power building templates right in the middle. And you can check that out and with the, the accompanying texts that explain the why behind the what. Uh, and then lastly, you know, this is a health focused brand here, a barbell medicine. I would want both <laughs> for health. I would not want to specialize in just strength for health purposes, just like I wouldn't want to specify in just muscle mass improvements for health. I would want both. You should get stronger, should gain more muscle mass, should get more conditioning and persist. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the extremes examples there could be like pure strength would be like somebody who literally all they do is they like go to the gym and, and hit a couple singles and leave. Like <laughs> that'd be, they, that'd, they miss that'd be a fair. few singles. Yeah. The there you go. <laughs> they miss a few singles because the muscles don't know the difference. Right. <laughs> yeah. and or then, or and, just and blood flow restriction training. Side, yeah. Or, or like the Basine study where the dudes who just like sat on the couch and took steroids and gained muscle, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that'd be the other end of the extreme, Yeah, which, you know, that's, that's another, that's another, uh, uh, you know, choose your own adventure kind of thing. But yeah, for health, uh, we would probably not do either of those things. <laughs> yeah, we would do, but why not both? All right. So the question at the end of this for you, Baraki, would you rather look like you can lift 800 pounds or actually be able to lift 800 pounds and not look like you really lift be Tanner Segear. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like it's, I feel like this is more of a spectrum than it is a, uh, cause I I'm somebody who somewhat often gets the comments of, Oh man, like uh, I wouldn't expect you're, you to be able to lift. You're really much. strong you, for your you size. Lift, exactly. You look, you lift more than you look like you could or something. To that effect. Do we need I'm to like, get stronger? Okay. Hold on. <laughs> do we need to get stronger? So it's just like, Holy, you're just strong period. Yeah. Yeah, or do we yeah. need to like 
get larger so people are like match. oh that checks out yeah that, yeah that, that, that's, yeah honestly where i am right now as far as like being able to lift say the amount that i can and people are like oh maybe i wouldn't have expected you to be able to lift that much you don't look like you lift that much it doesn't bother me at all that's okay i think if it was like i looked say say i looked like i did like bef- you know when i when i swam in college and i was like 160 pounds and i'm just like a twig yet i could still pull 800 somehow i don't know that i would love that so yeah yeah <laughs> you're like a the the muscle the muscle ant or yeah, something right. like that <laughs> <laughs> I think I would pick, okay, as long as I could lift, if I could deadlift 600 pounds, because that, that firmly elevates me from like bro status, sure. you know, yeah. 600, hmm. but look like I, I lift 800. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's my caveat. Otherwise, yeah. yeah, I don't know. The gym I train at now, uh, yesterday I squatted what 515 for a couple sets of five okay. or whatever. And the woman next to me was losing her mind. She's like, I've never seen somebody as strong as you, this, that, and the other. And in my brain, I'm like, yeah, well, it's not very impressive, but I'm, I'm liking the social credit that I'm getting here. <laughs> so like, I want a little bit of both, but I think it if I had that you're training in the right gym, I suppose. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But, it, but if I had to pick, I think I would lean at this point more towards, I want to look a little stronger because I'm happy with my current strength performance, even though yeah, I'm not you don't have PR anything levels. to prove left on that. Yeah. I already peaked. I peaked sure. back in 2014. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, this has been episode 205 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, the Venn Diagram of Strength and Hypertrophy alternate title, all show or all go. Uh, it's been brought to you by Pioneer. Uh, you can check them out. Get your custom belt, wrist wraps, wrist straps over at generalleathercraft.com. I was also brought to my attention. They actually do make custom golf head, golf club head covers. And uh, the email has been sent. The email, uh, look, Matt, if you're listening to this, I doubt you are. You're hundred, um, um, an hour and five minutes in the podcast for this particular part. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to which, whatever you create. But yeah, if you need a belt, if you need wrist wraps, wrist straps, head over to generalleathercraft.com. Um, support those who support us. We really appreciate it. Before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, we wish you a happy holidays. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.